Would you do this? Would you take your Bible and go over to the book of Genesis? If you don't know where Genesis is in the Bible, it's the very first one. Okay, so that's an easy one. Genesis. Now, if you're here today, if you're a guest, uh, here's what we typically do at our church. We usually preach through books of the Bible. That's our typical thing. We've been preaching through all the minor prophets, and we're about three quarters of the way through doing that. We just finished Micah a couple weeks ago, but we're, we, we, we kind of take a break in between and do a little bit of a topical series sometimes in between our exposition studies, something that the church may need discipleship more on. So we're doing a really robust series called Family by the Book. What I want to do is take the Word of God, the Book of God, and really talk about family. Um, and so we, we're now going to be on week three this week. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the Genesis ideal for family. Then we looked the second week, the Genesis ideal for marriage, one flesh. And today we're going to look at the Genesis ideal for manhood, for men, for husbands, for fathers. So if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not a father or husband. This doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. There's a general manhood that qualities that we're going to talk about uh, today. And this will actually take us two weeks. And then after that, don't worry, men, we'll talk about the women as well, but they'll probably only need one week. You need two. Just how it works sometimes. Um, we'll see. Maybe, maybe we'll discover we need more after that. So we're, this week we're going to do, we're going to start on the Genesis ideal for men. Now here's why I'm calling it the Genesis ideal. And why we're calling this family by the book. If you want to know, what does God want for the family? What does God want for husbands? What does God want for wives? What does, what does God expect for, for womanhood and manhood? Genesis is our starting point. That's the ideal. And that ideal has never changed. And any time Christians try to change the ideals of Genesis, it goes wonky for them. Okay, and actually, I'll show you uh, even today that the Genesis ideals, even for manhood, have not changed when you get over the New Testament. So we're dealing with about four thousand years of history, give or take. When you get the when you get Genesis, not its writing, but Genesis actually when it happened to you get to the New Testament, you get to Jesus time, then you get to the New Testament writers here. Let's just call it generally about four thousand years of history and in four thousand years of history. For, for the family, for marriage, and even for manhood and womanhood hasn't changed. What God wants, the roles and responsibilities and what God has for it has not changed. Now, what has changed in that 4,000 years and in the 2,000 years from Christ to us is this. Sinful mankind has taken God's Genesis ideals and perverted them. Where we see men who are in a position of leadership... Use their leadership to get power, right? And control. That was never the Genesis ideal of leadership for a household. A man is never authorized to use his leadership to gain power and control. In fact, if you study the scriptures and study them well, you'll find that Jesus is the epitome of leadership. Jesus is the epitome of, of manhood. But yet, do we find Jesus walking about trying to gain more power and control? Or do we find Jesus actually trying to give of himself? So there's a difference in that. So we're going to look at manhood today. And, and there's two sides of one coin that we're going to look at when it comes to manhood. Two things. This week we'll focus on one aspect. Next week the other aspect. But part of manhood, part of being a man, part of the leadership that God has put a man in, is he is to exercise responsibility. 
But his responsibility that he exercises is not about him gaining power, but it's about him actually serving. And then next week we're going to look at a man, part of manhood is service. And his service is rightly understood when he actually understands it in light of responsibility. Here's what I have men do sometimes. I'll say, you know, the kind of leadership God promotes for men in the Bible is servant responsible leadership. And men will hear that word servant leadership and think, oh, you mean I'm just to do everything that my wife asked me to do and just say, yes, ma'am. And well, and most of the women would go, that doesn't sound bad. <laughs> like I'm, I'm completely tracking. So I'll have men go, no, you're just promoting some kind of weakness. And I'll go, well, that's because you're looking at servanthood without responsibility. Okay. So servanthood, and we'll look more at this next week. Servanthood helps you to understand that your service to your wife and family is in line with the responsibilities God gives you for, as a husband and father and just manhood in general. So responsibility and servanthood, if you want to understand the other, if you want to understand servanthood, you've got to understand responsibility. If you got, want to understand responsibility rightly as a man, you have to understand servanthood. So we're going to kind of break those down. This week, responsibility. Next week, servanthood. Hopefully, it pieces together in your minds. I mean, it, it makes perfectly good sense up here with this limited head of hair that I have, but otherwise, I don't know. We'll see how it kind of shakes out for you. Would you do this with me? We're going to read a little bit in the Bible. Are y'all okay with reading the Bible? We're going to read a very familiar portion. So this is not like Micah, where we're reading Micah chapter 4, and you're thinking, Nick, I don't even not know what these guys are talking about right now. You probably know the passage we're about to read. So if you'll take your Bible, would you just stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word? We're going to just read a little bit. I want you to refresh your mind about the Genesis ideals for manhood today. For men, for husbands, for fathers. Look in chapter 2 of Genesis and we'll start in verse 15. Chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God, by the way, in this reading, I'll make small comments as we're going. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice responsibility. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. And the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice. He gives, it, he gives the commandment to Adam, but there's no Eve yet. And we don't ever find him giving it to Eve, but we find him giving it to Adam. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Notice, notice, the, notice that Adam is naming animals. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. Of course, I wonder what, what he must have been doing when he thought up the word hippopotamus. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heaven and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was no helper fit for him. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of the ribs, closed up its flesh. The rib that was, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Notice, he's naming her. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife are both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now everything looks exactly, this is the Genesis ideal. When you look in chapter 2, verse 15 through 25, when it comes to manhood, when it comes to husband, when it comes to father, when it, especially when it comes to marriage, this is the ideal template for what God wants out of us men, okay? Ideal template. Now here's what happens. Man perverts that. Man destroys that. We get to Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3. Y'all still okay with reading? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Isn't he? <laughs> Isn't he? And the Lord, and, and he said to the woman, I'm sorry, the serpent said to the woman, Satan, did God actually say you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God has said, you shall not eat from the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delighted to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and who was with her, who was with her. Everybody, look at that line. It says, who was what? Her. And he ate. Remember that. And the eyes of them both were naked, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. <laughs> Ever tried to hide from God? Doesn't really work very well. And the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Still sounds similar, doesn't it? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The first classical cases of blame shifting. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a messianic promise. Verse 16, And the woman said, I will surely multiply. To the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he will rule over you. So, and we'll cover this in a couple of weeks. There is basically, there's going to be some problems in God's Genesis ideal order in chapter 2 for her as a result of the fall. It's going to be hard for her to like this idea of leadership. She's going to want control. And at the same time, he's going to positionally have control, He's positionally going to have leadership, but he's going to want to, at times, take it by power. Now keep looking. And Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It shall eat, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Would you pray over this text? So I'm so thankful that we could take some time in Genesis and we won't catch everything in the whole text, but we're, we want to catch the aspects of what we see for manhood, the Genesis ideal. We see the Genesis deal in chapter 1 for family. We see chapter 2, the Genesis ideal for marriage, one flesh. And we see also in chapter 2 and 3, we see the Genesis ideal for manhood, the leadership that we have. So help us as we try to teach this for your glory and let it point to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So here's what you have. This is the Genesis ideal. Now, a couple of things I want to point out to you from the text that we just read. Adam has dominion in chapter 1. God gives Adam dominion over creation. But God also creates Eve, and they are to practice that dominion and stewardship and multiplication together. So just so you understand, just off the offset, if you haven't heard anything, when I talk about male leadership, and then several weeks, a couple weeks from now, we start talking about uh, submission and responsiveness by a woman. That is not subservience. That is where man has taken it and corrupted God's ideal. It does not mean subservience. If it was subservience, then why would God in Genesis 1 say that, 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 that uh, the husband and wife together would practice the cultural mandate of dominion over creation? Why would God create Eve to be a su- suitable helper, fit? She would be the only one that could help Adam accomplish all that God had designed for him. So she's not subservient, but she does have a position that God has established for her that glorifies God, glorifies the Godhead. And this is how society, family, a nation, everything works together. But what we do find is this. Adam, when you look in chapter 2, you find that Adam is doing things that you do when you have leadership over something. Adam is naming animals, and he's doing that even before Eve is about, and that she would share in that. But then also Adam is naming Eve. Do you see this? He names her twice. He names her woman. Now woman is, woman. the word woman descends from his name, man. Man is in the Hebrew, ish. And her woman is isha. And he's just basically, that word woman basically means you came from me. That's what woman is. You came from me. Now what's interesting is Adam's over here saying, look in verse 24. Therefore, I'm sorry, look at verse 23 of Genesis 2. He says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Which, by the way, this is when you are married. Why should you look at your wife as one flesh? Why should you have such supreme committed loyalty to her? Because she is a part of you. That is how God has designed it. God could have created woman from the dust, just like he created Adam. But there was a reason he created her from him. There was a reason He wanted one flesh, but he also wanted Adam to recognize that this comes from me. There's some leadership aspect in this. He's naming her, even the very fact. Does your kid name him or herself, or do you as parents name your kids? You name. Name denotes leadership, denotes a responsibility over that. Not only that, do you see in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, he's naming her woman. This is God's name for her, but even after the fall, when you look in Genesis chapter 3... It says that he names her Eve at the end of Genesis chapter 3. It says in Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means living, life. Now, interesting, had any life happened yet from them at this point? No, but he, 
He believes the promise of Genesis 3.15, that God's going to bring back a, a resolution, that they're going to have children, and maybe these children will bring a resolution. Maybe these children will be that, that, that Messiah. In some way, they knew that. And so he, in faith, says, name, renames her Eve and calls her the mother of all living. He's, making, he's, he's basically kind of making, a, making a, a belief that what God has said he'd do, he'd do. But I want you to notice something. This denotes some leadership aspects. You cannot deny when you look at the Genesis ideal and then you look at the rest of the New Testament that God has established for man to be a leader. That's what he wants. That's what God wants him to do. Here's our problem. The way we look at leadership is a little skewed. This is the problem. Because men hear leadership and and by the way, just by the way, I don't want to get political here, okay? So I'm not I'm not trying to do that. But when you look at, we, we're in election season. Did y'all know that? I just, in case you missed it, in case you didn't know, there's an election. It's kind of big. Typically, the typical person decides who they're going to vote for based on how does that person do with their power? How do they, like, I trust that person with power. I mean, that's the thing where you, so just understand, we're a little bit, we're a little bit predisposed to think of the word leadership and think power. That's the guy who's the leader. But the scriptures don't really have that kind of shading when it comes to leadership. Oh, don't get me wrong. There's aspects of leadership that do require a person to do hard things. Don't get me wrong about that. But it was never meant to be this kind of exercise of power and control. It was always meant to be benevolent. It was always to be not about self, but about the good of others. Are you hanging with me on that? So even when we look at leadership, when we look at Adam's leadership that we're going to kind of look at a little bit more. His leadership was not about gaining power for himself. And, and, and hopefully you don't see that, even in the Genesis ideal of chapter 2, that that's the norm, that that's what Adam was all about. Adam had a disposition of service, and that's what God had designed for him to do. It wasn't about serving self. But when do things go wrong is when man starts serving self, when he starts serving self. Now, I don't know what happened in the midst of this. I don't know all the reasons why Adam decided in that moment that he would listen to his wife. Now, in the scriptures, it actually points out that, that Eve is the one that actually took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil first. And she gave it to be with him. I don't know why, all the reasons why he decided. But I do know something. I do know this. He was in a position of leadership at that point. And in that position of leadership, he had a responsibility to exercise. Not for his own good and power, but for her own good. Anytime you look at leadership from a biblical standpoint, leadership actually denotes this idea of not gaining power, but using what authority God has given you for the good of others. That's leadership. Any male leadership in the home, it's not about you. In fact, that's what you always find when, when a man's leadership becomes abusive. It's because he wants power and control. If you've ever been in an abusive situation, that's what happens. Power and control. That's what abusive people do. Power and control. This is what abusive people do. They coerce everybody to get their way. They want power and control. But that's not the way the Bible describes leadership. And here's what happens. Some people try to remake the scriptures and go, well, God establishes this system, but it goes really bad. And we see men taking advantage of women all through the scriptures. And so this must, that must be something cultural. We've got to come off that. And I would go, no. It's not that God changed. It's that culture perverted God's standards, right? I mean, that's why men... I mean. 
God establishes how he wants it to look, and then man goes and does whatever he wants to do. He becomes polygamous. He becomes adulterous. He gets into homosexuality. He corrupts all the Genesis ideals, all for his selfish ends and purposes. That was never how God designed leadership. So leadership, this is what we see in the text. The very fact that he's naming these animals, he's naming Eve, he's taking this kind of position. It shows that he has leadership. Now, let's look at one unique aspect of his leadership, and I would say responsibility. Responsibility. Some people say, like, what is a man? Is a man a guy that knows how to skin a buck? Can do it in, like, five minutes? No. Although, that'd be really cool to watch. What is a man? Responsibility. That's what manhood is. So, if you're a man, and you're kind of like, man, what's it be to man? Like, what is a man? Responsibility. I mean, so, I mean, responsibility can be a guy with calluses or a guy with really silky smooth hands that he lotions every day, right? Like, that doesn't make you a man what your hands look like. What makes you a man is, am I responsible with the things that God has given me in my hand? That's manhood. And we find that in the Genesis account, the Genesis ideal, that Adam had some responsibilities to carry out. Part of his leadership was responsibility. Not gaining power with his responsibility, but carrying out for the good of his wife. And we find that part of the fall is that Adam didn't fully carry out his responsibility in that moment. And when a man's leadership is not all that it's supposed to be, it's because he's not carrying out the responsibilities that God has for him. I'll show this to you. Look in chapter 3, verse 15. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 15. Remember what we read in 2.15? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. We find God giving Adam the responsibility of relaying this message to Eve. Now, could, we, could there just be unspoken here that God did give it directly to Eve? It's possible. I, I, I don't think that personally because when Eve starts to talk about it to Satan, she kind of misquotes what God had told Eve, Adam. It just, I, I, have, I have a suspicion that if God had told Eve directly, she probably would have got it more right. But God had put a leadership responsibility on Adam. And Adam was to provide that responsibility of teaching and discipling his wife and helping her in this way. And he was also to provide protection. When you look in chapter 3 and verse 7, it says says over in chapter 3, actually it would be verse 6. So the woman saw the tree was good in chapter 3, verse 6, for food. It was delighted to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her, what? Husband who was with her. Remember, he has leadership responsibility. He's the one naming, okay? And, and even, even, she, even her name, woman, descends from man. I mean, there's leadership that he already has. But this leadership has responsibility to not only tell her not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but to provide a protection for her. That's part of the responsibility of men is to protect their women. Yes, it's a man's responsibility to protect his woman. How do you know that? Well, let me just give you naturally. No one will have to tell you this. If you're newly married and you hear something outside your house, okay, who is the one going to get up and go look at it? It's the man. Now, you're going to say, no, man, you ought to see my wife. She's like Annie Oakley, okay? We're letting her go out first. Okay, you're the exception to the rule, but you understand that, you know, like, you've just been married a week, you hear a noise outside the house, and then she says, honey, I hear something outside, and he's like, yeah, I do too, go check it out, right? Wouldn't she look at him like, dude, this, I got a bad deal, I got a bad deal. 
She knows it, and we know it. Responsibility. So his responsibility to protect, and Adam was called to do that. How do we know that? Well, when you look in chapter 3 and look at the curses that come on them, look at Adam's unique curse in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, And because you have, what? Listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. So she eats. He's there. He should have been protecting her. He should have been stomping on the head of Satan. He should have, he should have gone for the throat punch of some sort. He should have done his job, persuaded her, done whatever he could. But instead, he listens to her. And when she gives it, and it seems like in the text, there may be even some deal of she's taking it. And there's even some persuasion. I don't know. But in the end, we find this. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, which tells me God's intent for Adam was to practice leadership in such a way, not so he could gain more power, so that he could actually protect her. He was responsible in that moment to obey God more than her. But yet he chose the wrong decision. In fact, the sign that he is actually the leader in the end is because when we get to the New Testament and we start looking around, like for instance, if you were to flip over to Romans 5.19, it makes this parallel that, that Jesus is the first Adam, right? I'm sorry, that Adam is the first Adam, that Jesus is the second Adam. And Jesus makes right as the second Adam what the first Adam did wrong. Which tells me, who actually gets held responsible for the fall? Eve or Adam? Adam does. He has the leadership. God calls to Adam and says, hey, what, what's the deal? What, why have you messed this up? Even Genesis says, for as by one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, many were made sinners, so one man's obedience, many were made righteous. So it was Adam. Adam had the responsibility to teach her. Adam had the responsibility to provide protection and accountability for her. Adam, at this critical moment, he was to actually obey God and not her. This is why I have men all the time will say, oh, wait a minute, I, I don't like the servant leadership stuff because it just makes you subservient to your wife. And I'm like, well, no, actually, it just means you don't try to gain power by your leadership. But sometimes your leadership does have to say no. Y'all get that, right? Like, a man who is actually leading by faith and leading by the word, there may be some times where he says no. When would he say no? Well, the wrong time to say no is because you're being selfish, which no man does that, right? I get that, right? The time to say no is this is a sin against God. This is not wise. This is not best. God will ultimately hold me accountable in the end. Now listen, for the marriage... Who is primarily responsible for the direction of the marriage? The man is. He is. Now, does that mean that she doesn't have a say-so or insight? Absolutely not. You can't read the scripture and not see that. You cannot read Titus 2 and see that she has no responsibilities. You can't read about the Proverbs 31 woman and think that this is just some woman that has no brain and just does whatever. You can't read the Bible honestly and think that that saying all this means that a woman is subservient to such a way that she has no opinion in life. But what it does mean this is that in the end, man does bear a responsibility. And when God comes into the garden and looks at what happens, he calls out to Adam and says, Adam, what have you done? When the curse comes, he says, Adam, you listen to your wife above me. When God, when, when the curse of the fall is on all of us, who does he point back to as the culprit? Adam. But who's the solution? Jesus. In a moment, in a moment when we take communion, I mean that's one of the great things about communion. We're remembering the one real good leader. Now if you're kind of like, 
man, what can I do to be a great leader in my home? Well, when you take communion, think of Jesus, right? Here's a man who was responsible. You know what's really interesting? Adam. All the land he could want, all the food he could eat, a naked wife, everything a man could ever want to say yes to God in life. Everything. Here's Jesus in the wilderness. No food, no nothing, no comfort. All the opportunities to say no to God, he says yes. Why? Because part of manhood that Jesus exemplifies is responsibility. Jesus had a responsibility of going to the cross, bearing the wrath of God in our place, and he carried that out perfectly. Adam punted on first down. Just so you know, it's bad strategy in football to punt on first down. I just know that. So that's what we find. Man is a leader, and part of his leadership is responsibility. Now let me say this. He understands that responsibility when he can look at it in light of servanthood. Next week we'll look more at servanthood, and I'll tie it together. But when a man's looking at his responsibility, it's all about serving. That's what it's about. When you look at servanthood, it's all about responsibility. That's why I tell men, when they hear the word servanthood, they think subservience that you can't ever be a man of God or have a backbone or a spine or actually say, hey, no, I don't think this is the right way for our family to go. I'm looking at the scriptures. This is not what God wants. No, that doesn't mean that a man can't actually do that. It just means that when he does that, he's not doing that for his own self-benefit. That would be power and control. He's doing that for the glory of God and the good of the family. Are you understanding what, what I'm saying? If you're not, just hang with me. Maybe I'll get there. So it's his responsibility. Now, here's what some would say. Nick, I do not like that because Eve took it first, okay? Like, come on. Like, cut this dude some slack. You're always so hard on men, you know? You'll probably preach three messages on men. You probably won't preach half a message on women, right? Like, come on, Nick. Well, here's what I do find. Although Adam is responsible, could you say that it, the, the, the fall, like some of that, she has fault in that? Absolutely. You can't deny it. You can't take away from it. It actually, if you read First Timothy chapter 2, it says that she was deceived. So there's some fault that she has in there. But in the end, it's his responsibility. It's kind of like this. Let's say that um, I was the captain of a ship, a captain of a Navy ship, okay? I've got the haircut for it, I think. And let's say the ship had run aground. But let's say that I was actually in the captain's quarters and it was time for me to take a rest. I was sleeping. So I put the I put one of the sailors in charge of the ship and just said, basically, just don't hit anything. Don't don't do a Titanic for us. okay? but I go back and take a sleep. Now, if that ship runs aground, is it my fault? Well, I would say this. It may not be my fault, but in the end, is it my responsibility? Whose head whose head is on the chopping block with the government? Me. It's my, it's my responsibility in. So not, a lot of men go like, well, I don't like that. Well, sorry. I mean, it's just the way it is. So it may not be. You, so here's what I say. When it comes to our marriages, you as a, as a man bear the heavier weight of responsibility. You do. You do. Now, if, if your marriage is decayed or decaying, it may not. I mean, sometimes it may not be your fault, but it's your responsibility in. But here's what I do find. A man has so a man is so geared, and a wife who loves the Lord is so geared, that when a man is carrying out his responsibilities and he's carrying out his responsibilities in light of servanthood, that's a beautiful thing, and you don't tend to have near the issues that you have. 
And by the way, just so you understand, a man, sometimes when they learn that he's a leader of a home and he bears responsibility, he, gets, he starts to think, well, the only way for me to exercise that responsibility is to take power and control and domination. And I would say, you are looking at leadership from a secular perspective at that point. Leader, when a person takes power and control, they take power and control because they're selfish. You understand that, right? When a person takes power and control, they're doing it for selfish purposes. But when a person is actually exercising leadership based out of responsibility and servanthood, they take that on not for anything for themselves, but it's always for the benefit and good of others. You see in the text, that's what Adam was supposed to do. All his leadership responsibilities was for the good of Eve. So he abdicates his role. God tells him that he does that. He gives in. So the core of manhood is responsibility. So I would say this, at whatever age you are, like say if you're a young man, if you're on line, you're watching this, if you're young men, parents, when you have young, young men, you know what young men need to be taught? Responsibility. That's what they need to be taught. They need to be, and, and, and I'm telling you, sometimes, mom, that may mean that you have to release that child into the hands of your husband if he's going to teach him responsibility. Sometimes I've seen that, where a mom holds on to a son long enough, and the dad's just like, man, give me my boy. Like, put him in my hands. I have some things I want to teach him about how to love a woman, how to serve God. Like, put him in my hands. This means also that, that men, we, 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 we have to train our young men. We have to train them in responsibility. And if you really look at it, I don't know if we're doing a great job overall. I guarantee you, take the average teenage boy and take the amount of time he sleeps, which may be anywhere from four to probably seven to eight hours, right? I'm just giving an average of the average teenage boy. Let's say four to eight hours, okay? I'll guarantee you the average teenage boy probably... No, no, listen, teenage girl, it's probably more like eight to 12, okay? The average teenage boy, but I would say this. What the average teenage boy does in sleep, he almost does in playing video games. Now listen, I'm not going to tell you, like, video games are wrong. I'm going to say that, but I'm going to tell you, like, are we teaching our guys to be responsible? Like, it's good for men to be responsible. You know what's really sad? Women now... Women now make more, or on average, are, are starting to make more than what they've made in the past. And for a general pool of ladies now, it used to be that when a woman was looking for a man, she was looking for a man that could provide leadership and responsibility and provide responsibility and leadership for the home and would be a provider for the home. And now, the last consensus, they kind of took a survey and asked kind of, you know, 20-year-old women in their 20s and said, hey, what are you really looking for in a man? And here was their deal. Most women weren't looking for a man that had a job or could even do that because they kind of have lowered the expectation and said, that's, that's really hard to find. So I'm probably going to be single the rest of my life if I'm going for that. I'm just looking for a guy that won't cheat on me or beat me. That's the lowest level, right? Like he won't beat me or cheat on me. That's true. That's, that's what, like, what our young ladies are having to kind of reduce themselves to look for. And in fact, in this, in this survey, it actually said these, these girls were actually doing what they could to further their career. And their kind of thought was, if he even has a job that he even makes a little bit of income, that'd be great. But I'm really, in the end, I'm not really depending on him to make an income. I'll actually just do that for myself. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with women making the income. Don't, don't get that far. We'll talk about that more. Nothing wrong with that. I know some men are like, yeah, you're right. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Daddy's got to get paid, right? No. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, 
you have to you have to realize as a man you should bear that weight of responsibility that I've got to provide for my family. I'm not saying you have to be the one that makes more than her. Well, I'm going to get into that. But I say that our teenage boys have to be cultured in such a way that they understand the idea and value of work, of hard work, of providing, of responsibility, and the sign of manhood. If you're like a young man, if you're a teenage boy, and you're kind of like, what does it look like to be a man? That I can shave my three whiskers? No. It looks like manhood is responsibility. Does anybody have to tell you what to do in life? Do people have to remind you to do your schoolwork? Do people have to remind you to clean up your room? Do people have to remind you to take care of your chores? Do people have to remind you? If that's the case, you're not living up to the mandate that God has established for leadership, and that's responsibility. And and listen, this may scare you, but, you know, mama with a, you know, 15-year-old son, 16-year-old, 17, 18, you know that that's, that's going to that's probably going to be some woman's husband here in the next probably 5 years could be potentially 5 years or so you know 5 to 10 are, are do you want her do you want to hand that off to her i mean really is that what you want to do for your daughter-in-law do you want to hand that responsibility that's the essence of manhood responsibility adam was called to it he punted on it at the wrong time by the way just to say for manhood responsibility it's also, when you look at 1 Timothy 5.2, a man is responsible to protect the purity of women. In fact, young men, our respo- your responsibility is to protect the purity of the young women actually around you, which kind of runs different from our culture, doesn't it? I always have, like, you'll, you'll have, like, these teenagers when they're dating, they'll say, like, how, how physical, like, where is sin? Like, like how... How physically sweet can I be on my girlfriend before it's really sin, right? And, and, you know, what they're asking is, where's the line? Good question. Good question. Here's the line. And, and by the way, <laughs> I know I am severe, but I can show you my text while I've come to my conclusions. Here's what I like to tell young men. Where is God's line for you with a woman who is not your wife? 1 Timothy 5.2. You do nothing with another woman physically that you wouldn't do with another sister in Christ. That's God's standard when she's not your wife. Do you understand responsibility? This is not cultured, by the way, in manhood for us. This is not. Like, man, we are called to protect, fight for, defend, protect the purity of, responsibility, leadership. That's all a part of us. This is the essence of manhood. So men, we, we as husbands, we bear the primary responsibility of the marriage. And by the way, I'll just say this. Not all the time when a man is being repeatedly asked and asked to do something by his wife, sometimes that can be out of a position of, of idolatry for her. But sometimes, you want to know why some women have to continually, what we would say the word nag, right? Not a great word, but we use that word. Why would a, a wife sometimes have to repeatedly ask her husband something? It's because he's just not being responsible. That's why. And by the way, what would make a woman so negative sometimes towards her husband if she feels like she has to bear the weight of more responsibility? I mean, you see this now, don't you? You'll see wives that, that I mean, the standard's low for our culture. Basically, if he can have a job and he doesn't cheat on her or beat her and he comes home, be satisfied. What a low standard. 
So, so, oh, but she, oh, but she is responsible to provide an income, come home, do homework, clean, cook, grocery shop, and more than likely pay the bills. I'm just saying, on average, this is what we have. That, yeah, this is why some women have such a hard time is because they're having to bear the weight of responsibility and God has designed him to bear the weight of responsibility. Does that mean she doesn't have, she has no responsibility? Well, absolutely not. You can't read Genesis 1 and not see that she is a part of that cultural mandate. When you find the children, they're to honor and obey mother and what? Father. So it doesn't mean she has no responsibility. It just means she's not the one that bears the heaviest weight of responsibility. That's not how God designed the family to work. So a husband bears the responsibility for the family, for the marriage. He is to provide nourishment, prayer, Scripture discussion. He's to initiate conversation. He even should initiate family worship, family worship rhythms. I'm not saying you have to have family worship every single day and night, but I'm saying there should be times where Father is willing to initiate conversations. There's nothing more frustrating to a woman than if she's the one that always has to call the family together to have spiritual conversations. Now, she can do that because as a mother, in Titus 2, she's to train her children, and part of training her children is that. But Jack, she's not there to train you. Like, that's your responsibility. Like, you have to take that leadership role. And, and you don't take it because you're trying to get more power. You're taking it because this is what God has asked. A man has this responsibility. By the way, he also has responsibility to instruct and discipline. You know what's interesting? Do this. Hold your place there and look in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. I just want to show you some, even some principles the Genesis ideal has never been forgotten. It's never, it's not cultural. It's still there. Where a man is to practice responsibility in the household, responsibility for the marriage, and general manhood, even if you're single. So don't think like, Nick, you're just talking to husbands and, and no. Actually, when I told you a while ago, 1 Timothy 5, 2, I mean, young men were more than likely single. Single men are to practice responsibility to all of society, to all of women. If you're a single man, your responsibility is to protect the purity of the women that are around you. So Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, notice this. Look in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you. You may live long in the land. Now look at Ephesians 6 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Interesting. Right here, notice, and over here, there's a parallel There's a parallel passage in Colossians that says the same thing. It talks about a child obeying mother and father, honoring them, but then it says about the father, don't drive them to anger. Don't provoke them to anger. Colossians says, fathers, don't provoke them to anger. Now, why would that, why would it say that? Why would it say father and not the mothers? Especially when we find in the scriptures that the mother is typically the one who's gearing and discipling mostly the children. Why do we find that? Well, because he is exercising a leadership role that has a huge impact. Think of a, a man, a, a, a father and a husband. Think of him kind of like the hub of the wheel, right? And from that hub, all the strength and stability of the rest of the tire kind of come. Like if you don't have a strong, a strong hub, you won't have a strong wheel, strong tire. 
So what we find is this, a man has such a huge impact, whether you like it or not, a man has a huge impact. Whether you like the idea of male leadership or not, and whether you like the idea that men are to bear the primary responsibility, whether you like it or not, you're not going to get away from the fact of this. If a man isn't living in that leadership responsibility, it goes bad. Here's a man right here, an example of a father. He provokes his children to anger because of how he even parents and fathers. Notice it's not warning the mothers in general. Because in general, a mother doesn't provoke as much. Why? Because a mother is more prone to nurturing. Why does a man have a problem with this? Because when you read Ephesians 5, he naturally is a little bit selfish by nature. And don't we all know this, right? I mean, if you don't know this, just have a baby. Have a baby. Men don't have babies. I can't recommend that one. But have a baby. And then let's say both of you don't have to go to work the next day, right? And the baby gets up in the middle of the night. What, where is the higher proclivity of which one of those two that's probably going to bump up first, right? Is he, now, will he get up? Possibly, if he's a servant, and he's, he'll get up. But it's probably not going to be immediately. It's probably going to be like, you know, a little rustle, right? She'll typically get up a lot faster. She'll take care of it. And you're like, uh-uh, not my man. Like, well, great. You've got a great leader. You've got a great servant. Well done. You know, you picked well. Maybe, you know... Maybe young women should stop just dating men off, off like apps and maybe they should let you arrange their marriages, okay? So like, good job. You picked well. But you find that she comes in. Why? Because she's naturally a nurturer. In Scripture, we see men, as a part of their fallenness, they're naturally a little selfish, a little self-focused at times. How do you know? I mean, even look at the average family, okay? Let's take a husband and wife. They've got kids. They've got responsibilities. More than likely... She doesn't have a hobby. Okay? More than likely, he does. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a hobby. I'm just saying there is this proclivity sometimes that men in their fallenness love to kind of protect self and, and, and have more of that. It's just an easier slide. But we find that men, though, men are called to instruct. Men are called to father. And fathers here can provoke to anger. It shows the leadership responsibility he has. By the way, look at the rest of verse 4. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know what, what is convicting as a father is we sometimes as fathers let our wives take the bulk of this. Now, if you're not around, you're not around. But when you're around fathers, when we are around, are we actually fulfilling this mandate of bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? I find even sometimes as a man, it's hard to always be responsible. Like you, you come in and, 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 and you've got all these other ideas of how you want to spend the whatever, whatever modicum of time you have left. But that's not how God has called us. God has called us to be responsible. So that means when you get done with your job during the day and you pull up in the driveway, you have a new job or you have your second job, which is your family, that you bear that leadership responsibility. I know you may say like, well, guess what, Nick? I don't pull up in the driveway anymore. I get off my headset and walk out of my room because I'm on Zoom all day. Okay, well, then when you open the door and come back to the family. So here's what men are. Do this. Go over to look at Ephesians 5 since we're there. I just want to show you this principle in the New Testament. I want to show you how this has never changed. It's never changed. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is as himself its savior. Do you see this? 
Men bear this primary responsibility for leadership of the marriage and family. You even see in Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. Now do this. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, which you'll go left. You'll go left just a couple books. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. And I want you to understand, I emphasize headship of men and the leadership of men. But don't for one second think that I promote that so that he can gain power. He, I promote that because that tells you what kind of responsibility and servanthood he's supposed to have. So we look in verse 11, it says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to notice the Genesis ideal, Adam is the head. Adam names, bears responsibility, is called on the carpet, and part of his curse is you listen to your wife. You did not lead. You did not act as a head. You did not do that. You find 4,000 years later, God is still talking about men being the head. But I want to point this out to you. The reason men are pointed out as the head is not because they're smarter, okay? Not because of intelligence. It has nothing to do with that. Here's what the reason. Because God has an order that he's established for the home that shows forth the glory of the gospel of Christ and shows forth the relationship of the Godhead within itself. That's why. So why is a man called to lead his family in responsibility? Because Jesus is responsible towards us. Ephesians, once, I, once again, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, is himself its savior. God is trying to show his love for us by, his, by Jesus coming as the leader husband. And God wants the husband to show forth that leadership of love to his wife. You know what's interesting? A wife is called to love her husband in Titus 2. A husband is called to love his wife as well. But in Ephesians 5, a husband has a higher love calling than his wife. Oh, yes, it's true. Husband, you are to love your wife just like you'd love any other sister in Christ. And, 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 and wife, you are to love him like you'd love any other brother and love a husband. But a man is called to love his wife with a higher love, a love like Christ loves the church. How far does Christ's love for the church go? All the way to death. So like I'll have men sometimes go like, well, how far should I serve? Well, when you start drawing blood, let's have a conversation. Like, go as far as you can go. That's what you can do. Why? Because that's the ideal that shows the gospel. This is the whole reason. Why God set up the whole thing in Genesis was to show his ideal for what the relationship with the Savior would be. When you read Ephesians 5, it it becomes clear. Look back over there. You can't deny this. Ephesians 5 clearly points out at the very end of Ephesians 5, it says this. Therefore, a a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, that will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So, He just says, like, the relationship of a husband and wife shows forth the glory of the gospel. And not only this, when when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I want you to see that even, even the way the Trinity works, it shows forth the family. So, for instance, you've got God the Father. In 1 Corinthians 11, 3, we find that God the Son 
is submissive to God the Father. And that God the Father practices leadership, responsibility to the Son. When you read in John 17, you find that the Holy Spirit will actually be responsive and submissive to the Son. Now, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are they all equal in value to each other? Absolutely. But is there a functional difference? Yes, because that's what best glorifies God. And our marriages are meant to show that. So when a man leads and responsibly and does that, he's trying to not only model the relationship of Jesus for the church, but he's also trying to model how the Trinity works, that God has a functional order for society. This is how it works. And I can think of no other reason than, you know, in a minute to take communion and just to remember this. You know, when I take communion, I am remembering, I am remembering the responsibility of what my Savior husband Jesus did for me. He did for me what I couldn't do for myself. There was every distraction, every reason. Even even Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of the cross. But yet he has set his face hard towards it. Because this is what obeyed, this is what glorified God. And for Jesus, it was nothing about himself. This is why Jesus wasn't a man that was trying to gain power. He was trying to give power. But I want you to understand, the whole time he's doing that, did Jesus have a lot of power? He had a ton of power. But that doesn't mean he ever used it to exercise it for his own selfish needs and purposes. His power was always there so he could actually serve with that power. See, this is where we get off. Even today, as we take communion... This is a chance for us to renew our soul, to renew our thoughts, to renew our thoughts about even how we view the family. A correct understanding of God and his character, a correct understanding of the gospel message is actually how when we take communion, we're able to worship God. When we take the bread, we're taking this bread thinking about the body of Jesus Christ who was faithful and responsible and led in and died for the church. We're taking We're taking the cup and recognizing his blood and memorializing it and saying, you died in my place. You bore the wrath of God. You took on that. You didn't have to. Only you had the power to do it. And you you successfully executed it. To this day, you resurrected. And someday, you're in heaven right now advocating for me. Someday, I'll be with you. And what great responsibility that shows. Your leadership was not just half-hearted. Your leadership was full to the absolute end that it could go. Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray and prepare our hearts to take communion. If you're online, if you're here, and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, this I can, I can promote no other better reason for you to ask Him as your Lord and Savior and commit your life to Him than you'll actually understand as a man what true manhood is. You can't understand true manhood unless you understand the ultimate man of all, Jesus Christ. The responsibility and servanthood that, that, that he's led out from. Would you pray with me over this? We're going to have a time of taking God's communion. Lord, thank you that we could study about manhood, about the leadership, responsibility that we have. And Lord, we look so forward to talking about the servanthood part of it. It reminds us of the servanthood of you. As we take this cup in a minute, as we take this bread, would you let it be a time for us as God's people that we remember? For those of us who are are not in Christ yet, may this be a reminder that it's time to repent of our sin and make you Lord and King so we can take communion. For those of us taking it as followers, May we take it and realize 
that we are now freed from sin. The power of sin, the slavery of it. Lord, as, we, as those of us who are fighting against sin take communion, may this once again be a reminder of the gospel for us. A reminder. We need that. As we take it, would you let it also for, for the rest of us be something that stays with us this week? Would it just be a visual, a tactile thing in our hands that reminds us that you loved us, that you cared for us, that you've come and provided the leadership for us, that you have served us, and now we can do this for the rest of the world. Our life from here on out is meant to not live for self, but to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. Let us let us have that full weight on us as we take the communion here in just a moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with us?